see everybody. Y'all doing all right today? Well, happy Sunday to all of you. If you're joining us by live stream, we welcome you as well. Thank you that you're spending uh, whatever you're doing, whatever, you know, uh, the, the activity of your homes or maybe you're mobile. Uh, this, the opportunity, the, the, the thought that you would join us today uh, warms our hearts. So we're glad that you are with us. If you are uh, here for the first time, my name is Jeff. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, we are extremely glad that you are uh, choosing to worship with us on Sunday, we have been in a uh, kind of an extended series in the New Testament book of First Peter, and we're around, not even rounding the corner, we're like towards the end. I think we got after this one three more sermons left, and then we'll turn to the the Advent uh, season. Uh, but today we're going to be looking at the, the 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 idea of suffering. We've been in suffering for a while, right? All right. So this is uh, this is perhaps our last uh, sermon on suffering, at least for. A little bit of time, so you all uh, bear with us. Uh, Peter is really offering a final word on, um, you know, his own reflections on the reality of suffering and what that looks like in the Christian life. And he's sort of sprinkled that throughout the letter. Um, and in our text today, he's bringing some of those conclu- uh, those reflections to a conclusion. So we're going to be looking at a few verses today. Uh, chapter four again, starting in verse twelve, going all the way to verse nineteen, as is our tradition. Grab your Bibles, grab your app. Let's read these verses out loud together. Here's what the apostle says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you. Thank you for a a, a beautiful day. It's raining outside, and this is not the perfect weather in in, in, in our mind's eye oftentimes, but your rain replenishes the earth and it shows your creativity uh, in, in keeping this beautiful earth uh, world of ours going. And so we thank you for it. We thank you for the gathering of your church that uh, we get to do this, that we get to be here in community. Uh, we join with those who are on our live stream and, and, and together, Lord God, we, um, we demonstrate our purpose, that we're here to glorify you. Uh, Lord, today I have a, a simple prayer that the uh, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable to you and that you would, you would by your spirit, um, uh, invade this place, invade our space, uh, and that we would leave here, uh, knowing that we've been amongst, uh, that we've been in your presence and that you change us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. So I got one question that I think is the overarching question for our time together this morning. And it's this. Actually, it's a, it's a multiple question, but like on my paper, it's got one, one question, right? So how do we prepare for 
and persevere through suffering and trials? I mean, how do we get through life when, when life is hard? How do we get through rejection? And, and how do we overcome being ostracized? How do we, um, how do we make it when, when life has caused us to be marginalized? How do we uh, persevere when we're experiencing significant loss? And those are the questions that Peter has answered for us and still continues to answer in, uh, in his letter. Uh, he's, he's, he's writing to people who are scattered throughout Asia Minor, and he's reminding them firstly of who God is and what God has done for them in Jesus. And obviously he's, by extension, writing those same things to us. But not just is, is, is Peter reminding these Christians of who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus. He's talking to us in regards to um, who Jesus is in his person and his work. Who Jesus is in his person and his work. And he keeps reminding them of who they are because as we experience today, they're experiencing the same thing. The world is going to press them in and constantly give them a different message, a different message than what our scriptures give us about who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus and who he calls us to be in, in light of that. The world that we live in is not only it's going to give us a different message, it's going to try to get us off of the message of Scripture and to tear us down. And so these people, like us, are experiencing some, some difficulty in life. They're experiencing a measure of suffering. They're not, they're not dying for their faith in this, in this, uh, in this period of life, uh, of life, it's in this period of history. Uh, they are experiencing insults and rejection. They're being ostracized in their own community. They're being marginalized, but they're they're experiencing those things because they put their faith in Jesus and they're demonstrably sharing their faith, showing their faith. And so Peter's exhorting them how to be faithful to God when life gets hard. And so in our text today, uh, I think Peter is telling us at least three things, and this will be my sermon outline for today. Firstly, and I, I call these paradoxes. Like, like some of these things, they're like, well, how can that be? Uh, and, and I'll couch them as, as such. Uh, Peter says, don't be surprised by the fire. The fire is going to come. Don't be surprised by it. He exhorts us to rejoice in the fiery trials of life. I mean, who wants to do that? And thirdly, he's going to, to encourage us to entrust ourselves to the refining fire, the, the, the fire of God's trials that he brings. They have a purpose, and that purpose is to refine us. Let's look at verse 12. This is what Peter says. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Um, Peter uses that word, beloved. I mean, you just got to stop there because, um, I mean, that's an interesting word to use considering the words that follow, follow it. Uh, Peter has used this word beloved in this same letter only one other time. He uses it in chapter 2, verse 11, and he uses it to preface what comes after it, because what comes after it in chapter 2, verse 11, and what comes after it in verse 4 are, are hard things. See, see here's, here's what Peter is. Peter is, he's not some... Uh, treacherous, overlording leader that's, um, that's trying to hammer his people and make life hard for them. Peter's coming alongside them as, as a benevolent, kind discipler, and he wants them to know the truth. And what is that truth? The truth is, Peter wants them to be aware of the reality that uh, of all the things that they're going to face when they follow Jesus. He says, I want you to, to know there's some things coming because you're just uh, abiding in the name of Jesus. Here's what I found. I found that when, when we suffer, when people suffer, uh, particularly when the suffering is hard, uh, it's, it's, it's the thing that, um, that shocks us most is that we're actually suffering. Right? It's, it's not the actual event of suffering. It's that we actually are suffering. And we say to ourselves, why in the world is this happening to me? As if it was, weren't supposed to happen to us. We don't expect it. And so when it comes, we're shocked that things, the things of life, the things, the, the, the way that life has turned, perhaps not in our favor, how it's turned out. The, the, the dream of, of having a pain-free existence in this world. When it doesn't come about, we're shocked by that. And Peter says, come on, folks, don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. You guys remember the Wizard of Oz? 
Like one of classic, there, is there anybody here that hadn't seen The Wizard of Oz, some version of The Wizard of Oz? And so obviously Dorothy lives in Kansas. She has uh, kind of a nightmare, right? Uh, in, her, in her dream, uh, her house and all ends up in the land of Oz. It plops down, it crushes one of the wicked witches, and uh, all, all the little minions are saying, oh, ding dong, the witch is dead. I can't, I, I just love songs like that, right? And so a great witch shows up, uh, takes these beautiful ruby red slippers off of the wicked witch's feet, puts them on Dorothy's feet, and those slippers are the key to Dorothy getting home. And the witch tells, the, the good witch tells uh, Dorothy, all right, so the key to you getting home are these slippers, but not only that, you got to follow the, re- the yellow brick road. Follow the yellow brick road. Follow the yellow brick road. So Dorothy starts out on a journey of following the yellow brick road, and along the journey, of course, she picks up some friends. She picks up the Tin Man, Scarecrow, and the Lion, and they're excited because along the yellow brick road, the road, the road is leading to leading them to the land of Oz, to to, to the Wizard, because. In Oz, with the wizard, all their problems are going to be solved. It's going to be amazing because this grand wizard is going to get Dorothy back home. Not only that, he's going to get the lion, the scarecrow, and the lion, the, the, all the things that they've been missing in life. All those things that they've wanted. He's going to miraculously turn them into something that they currently are not. And so they follow the yellow brick road, and they get to Oz, and in that day, I think it was the 50s or 60s, it looks pretty archaic right now, right? But it's impressive. Dorothy and her companions are impressed. They knock on the door. They get an audience with the wizard, and they get put in front of the wizard, and it's, it's, it's as if he's this godlike figure who has the capacity to answer their, uh, their, their every request. Except Toto goes behind the curtain, he pulls the curtain back and they figure out, oh no, the wizard, the wizard is just like us. More than that, the wizard is a fake. He's no better off than them, probably even worse because the wizard was this balloon guy that just gets, he gets stuck there in Oz in perpetuity. And so the question for Dorothy is like, what do I do now? Like, what, what do I do now? I thought this place was going to give me some hope. And hopefully you realize that the, the story of Oz, the, 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 the whole musical, is a metaphor for life. Maybe you've been told that along your journey, follow Jesus and all your troubles will go away. No more struggles in life. Everything is going to be perfect. You're going to be fine. You'll be healthy. You'll be wealthy. Always happy. You'll never have a, never, uh, ever have a, a, another struggle. Some of you all have been told that, right? Some of you have been in churches where you've, you've been told, like, hey, you just put your faith in God and he's going to take, take care of everything else. And if you experience any kind of trouble, it's just because you're not believing hard enough. Some of us have been in churches that have, that have given us that kind of mantra. And I would not be a faithful pastor if I did not tell you that that kind of language is not in the Bible. It, it, that's, that's, a, that's a lie. If someone had, had, has, had told you that, uh, that, that if, if someone's telling you that you just put your faith in Jesus and you won't have any more troubles, they're disagreeing actually with what Jesus himself says, because Jesus tells us something very different from his own lips. Jesus says, if you follow me, you have to deny yourself and pick up a cross to follow me. Jesus says that if you're going to follow me, they're going to treat you just like they treated me. So think for a minute, for those of you who have read a little bit of the Bible, how do they treat Jesus? I mean, how did it end for Jesus? They put him on a cross and they killed him, not for his own wrongdoings, but for ours. Isaiah 53 says this. He says, he was rejected, despised, a man acquainted with suffering and grief, one for whom they, that, that we hide our faces. So Isaiah is writing of this suffering servant, one that would rise up, he would be the Messiah, and he would uh, suffer uh, physically in his body for, for crimes that he did not commit. And of course, he's giving us a picture prophetically of, of Jesus. And we see everything that Isaiah talks about in, in this picture of the suffering servant 
come to fruition in Jesus' life. In fact, as Jesus uh, uh, goes through the Garden of Gethsemane and eventually ends up on the cross, he's, he's betrayed by his very closest friends. On the cross, Jesus is, is, is crying out for, for, for the forgiveness of, of people that, that have sinned against him, right? And all of his closest friends desert him. They run away from him, even as Jesus is crying out for the forgiveness of their sins. Luke 640, Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So think for a minute, what is Jesus like? And if a disciple is not like his teacher, what happens to Jesus? He's rejected. He suffers. So what is, is, is Jesus saying? He's saying we're going to suffer. But the, the verse I want to uh, hang on to for a couple seconds is John 16, 33. Here's what Jesus says in his own words. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. There's a paradox being presented in this in this text. Jesus says we can have peace in him, but in the world we're going to have tribulation. Right. He's telling us life is going to be hard. But at the same time, in me, you can find salvation, perhaps not physical salvation, but salvation for your souls. So I'm I'm not a doomsday person. I'm kind of like glass half full. Some of y'all, any, any of y'all glass have empty people, like everything is dark and dreary. Y'all not going to admit it. Some of y'all are in here, right? Uh, I wouldn't call myself an optimist. I'm, I, I, I used to work realist, but actually I'm probably naively positive. I have this naive perspective about life that, you know, most things are going to go okay. Um, and sometimes when you're glass half full, naively positive, uh, you can paint an overly rosy picture of of the world. But when we read verses like uh, Isaiah 53 and Luke 6 and John 16, uh, we have to be faithful to God's word. Right. And Jesus says we will face tribulation. We'll have trouble and suffering. That's what the word tribulation, the sense of that word tribulation is there's uh, there's going to be a partaking of trouble and suffering for you as you partner with Jesus in this life. He's saying life won't always go well in terms of ease and, and comfort for you. But here's the turning point of this text, of, of this particular verse. He says, I'll be with you. Those are good words, right? I, I, I have overcome. I've overcome not for me. I've overcome for you. You're not alone in the difficulties of your life, and you're not without help. The reality for us as we live life in this world is there's not a person on the planet that doesn't suffer in, in some kind of a way. And so I think the, 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 the question as we, as we glean Jesus' life and all the things that he did for us is, who will you have with you when you do, when you do suffer? As for me in my house, Right? I want Jesus. Hopefully you say that of yourself. I want Jesus, the one who overcomes the world. And anything I'll ever face is already something that he's overcome. That's who we should want with us in the fire. Perhaps you've seen the movie Selma. And if you have not seen the movie Selma, go like rent it. YouTube, I don't know. Go get it. Like look at it, right? Not because of the racial stuff going on. Not even because it's. It, it, yeah, because it's American history, right? It's an important moment in the civil rights movement, and it portrays an actual event um, uh, that was the turning point um, of, of many things in our nation. Uh, Selma uh, kind of depicts John Lewis and Martin Luther King as they're initiating marches in Alabama to protest voting rights. Alabama had become the battleground for suffrage. There was still the suppression of the black vote in uh in the South, and Alabama was the, the, the prototypical picture of, of all of that. And so uh, Martin Luther King, uh, with the Southern Christian Leadership Council, uh, was working on and off with the leaders on the ground in Alabama to, uh, to organize and execute marches where they would, uh, they would have um, peaceful protests, protesting this idea of, of giving blacks the right to vote. And so it all boiled down to March 7th, 1965. John Lewis, um, the famed congressman, 
uh, who was just, uh, you know, a 20 year old something back then. Uh, he amasses 600 people and they're going to go across the Edmund Pettus, uh, Pettus Bridge because that bridge took them from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, Alabama, where they were going to protest in front of uh, the governor's mansion. They were protesting injustices and abuses and, 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 and the lack of privilege for people of color, black people in America. They lock arms. They gesture across the bridge. They get to the precipice of the bridge. And in front of them, they see what? They see cops and mounted policemen uh, and like, like a formidable obstacle in front of them. Right. They don't know what they're going to do. John Lewis and one other his, one other his uh, compatriots, a leader, uh, walk up to a policeman and say, hey, can we just talk to you? They were going to negotiate a way for this uh, these 600 persons to, to get through the bridge and then walk the 54 miles from Selma to Montgomery. And the policeman basically just cut them off. So it's like, yeah, I'm not talking to you. You're not going any further. Go home. Go to your church. Turn around. You're not going to proceed. And then what amassed was really a, a, a physical, uh, visible beating of those 600 people. And it was captured on national TV. One of the turning points for the civil rights movement. Now, my point in bringing that up is, you know, uh, these people that were there, these people that had not just sacrificed their time, but uh, had, they deliberately made decisions to be to, to protest peacefully, um, to move forward this idea of having freedoms in the country that they did not currently have. Do you think that they did that thinking they would be safe, that, that nothing would happen to them? Do you think they did that with any knowledge that, well, this is going to be easy. They're just going to let us pass through. We're not going to suffer. Absolutely not. They knew what was to come. It was a peaceful protest. That's one of the accolades of the of the civil rights movement, that it was all peaceful against all the, the nasty, ugly, physical, brutal things that happened to the, the civil rights fighters. And so the question for us is, why in the world would they embark on such a journey? I think they walked into it knowing that it had the potential to produce something. It had the potential to produce something, a right to vote that blacks in the South had not been able to experience up to that point. Liberty and freedom that were written into our constitutional documents that they, as Americans, were not experiencing. Perhaps in the same way, those of us who know Jesus will be called to embrace suffering. Probably not like the the civil rights fighters experienced in the 50s and 60s. I don't think God is calling us to that, but maybe. There are Christians today on the planet that experience persecution and suffering in the, in, in the same way or worse that, that, that people in the civil rights movement in America did in the 50s and 60s. I don't know if he's calling us to that, but, but perhaps he's calling us to embrace suffering, to step into something that might get you rejected, that might end up you being made fun of, that might you might lose notoriety or perhaps lose something more significant in this life so that you might gain the rewards of being faithful in the life to come. Jesus is saying, don't be surprised, church people. And if we're not surprised, that means there's a sense that there's a, there's a readiness about us, right? That, that we're ready to embrace suffering, not for suffering's sake, but for what it produces, so Jesus says, don't be surprised by the fire. Here's the second thing he says. He says, rejoice in the fire. This is a paradox, right? Like who in the world tells us to rejoice in fire? I mean, how do you rejoice in suffering? How do you rejoice when you know there's, there's going to be fire? I think the Bible gives us some examples of that. The early church uh, is a great example. Uh, when the early church... Um, Disciples suffered for Jesus. Think of, 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 uh, Peter and all of his companions being put in jail and, and be, and, and saying, man, we got to suffer for Jesus. And they rejoiced in that. That's an example of that. I think the, 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 the epistle writer James captures what the, uh, what the disciples in Acts experienced in the words of their day by writing, counted all joy that they got to suffer the various trials on behalf of Jesus. 
So in some ways, you know, there's the, there's a various obvious answer, a very obvious answer to the question of why do we count it joy when we suffer? And the obvious answer is Jesus suffered for us, right? That's what the Bible tells us. Jesus suffered for us. Second Corinthians 521. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might like take on all of his qualities. We might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Jesus, who only knew and did what was right. Jesus, the true image and glory of God, came to the earth, laid his life down for sinners like you and me, that we might get all that he is. Right. He suffers for us so that we would not suffer for our sin, but instead suffer for our savior. That's the opportunity we have. If you're a Christian, if you know Jesus, you don't have to suffer for sin anymore. It doesn't mean that you don't sin. It means you're not going to experience the wrath of God as if you're paying for your own sin. Jesus has done that for us. And so what is it that we get out of it? We get instead to suffer for our Savior. That we wouldn't have to suffer for our rebellion, but instead we suffer for righteousness sake. That we would see such glory and honor in Jesus that we'd be willing to suffer for the one who is willing to suffer for us. And, and Peter's saying, that's why we rejoice. And we do that before a dying world so they see in our lives that Jesus is worth suffering for. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. I'll stop there. So here's another reason, not another point, another reason why we rejoice when we suffer. Peter says, because we get to share in Jesus' sufferings. And if you're a Christian, I think you know this. You know, oftentimes we, when we go through suffering, it's to remind us that there are many ways to get to know Jesus. But this, this, this idea of sharing Christ's sufferings is just a little bit of step. It's a step further. It's, it's sharing in the, in the sense that we get to fellowship with Jesus and what he's experienced on our behalf. It's this idea of partaking in with the one who willingly suffered for us so that we can experience his great love for us. That's what we're that's what we're being made attuned to. The the great love that God would have for us in Jesus, that he would suffer for us. Um, For those of you that have been in the military, I mean, you get a good picture of of this um, of the camaraderie of the bond, of the, the, the sense of fellowship that you experience when you go through suffering, when you go through hard times, basic training, deploying with a unit, perhaps getting in a firefight, like those difficult kinds of circumstances. And, and after you go through that, you can't help but be a more tight-knit, close-knit unit because you've experienced something that most people don't experience, right? You experience suffering, which produces a... Uh, an appreciation for the other, right? I, I've got your left, you've got my right, like, like we're in this together. And when we suffer, that's what we're doing in a sense in our relationship with Jesus. And I would tell you, that's the gift of going through hard times. You, you cannot get that in other, any other way. So the Bible tells us we're not alone. Jesus suffered for you. And you know that when you're in tough times, his purpose for you is that you experience him more to share in the, the fellowship of his sufferings. Peter says, so rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's what Jesus suffering points us to. Uh, it's, it's the day when Jesus will be seen and, and known for who he is, like, like fully glorified. Habakkuk 2.14 says, it'll be, uh, it'll be a day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's a lot of glory, right? Like, like the, the earth, I, I'm not good at science. Y'all know that, right? All right. I'm not good at a lot of things, but here's what I know. When I look at Google Maps, there's a lot of water. A lot of water, more water than land. And we're told the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's a lot of glory. There's coming a day when every knee is going to bow 
And every, every tongue is going to confess Jesus is Lord. There's coming a day when we'll see Jesus as he is. And when we see him as he is, the Bible tells us we will be made like him. Transformed from glory to glory, we'll be complete looking like Jesus. Amen to that. The righteous, holy, glorious, sin-free people he saved us to be. And if you're looking at yourself right now, you know you got a lot of work and it ain't going to happen. It's like this glory ain't going to happen unless Jesus comes and does it for you, right? He's got to take us to the finish line. But that's what's going on in our suffering. There's this future hope, a future glory to be revealed. Verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a as a meddler. I'm going to focus more on verse 15 than I am on verse 14. Uh, basically, Jesus is he, he's saying, all right, there's 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 a way if you are bearing the name of Christ that you're going to suffer. Right. But if you suffer for that name, you're going to be blessed. But then in verse 15, he's saying, all right, there's a reality. There is a way to suffer and not suffer rightly, right? Like you can be, you can be suffering and, and be all wrong in the way you go about it. And that's what he's talking about in, in verse 15. And, and, and the, the, the truth is we can suffer for wrongdoing, uh, for our sin in this present day. And God allows that. That's what Romans 1 is talking about. God turns us over to our sin, not so that we'll wallow in our sin, but so that we will experience its destructive power so that eventually we will turn to the only God that can save us from that same destruction, right? God doesn't want us to wallow and stay in our sin and experience his wrath. He wants us to feel the effect of our sin and then turn to him. And so he's saying to his readers, all right, there's some stupid ways to suffer, don't suffer like that. And how do I know it's a, he's talking about like it's just the stupidity of suffering? He uses the word meddler, right? Meddler. Uh, that can mean a lot, but the sense of it is like it's busybody. You got any busybodies in your life? Not the kids. I'm talking about adults, right? Someone that interferes in the affairs of everybody else is like getting inserting themselves, saying stuff they don't need to say because they want to say it. It's posing your agenda on somebody, usurping somebody's authority and, and, and pressing them on your own, um, putting your convictions on somebody else and just like interfering in the lives of other people when it's not welcomed. That's what that's what this idea of of meddler means. And so Peter's saying, like, don't suffer for destructive sin like that, particularly this idea of like definitely not murder and, and, and heinous sins like that, but not even in the idea of meddling. He says, you get no points for being a jerk. Excuse the expression. Like that, there is no, there is no being a gay word for Jesus, right? You don't get any points for that. This is the guy that says, yeah, I suffer all the time. I just tell people like it is and I don't care if they're mad at me or not. I'm just going to tell them who they are and what they need to do. I treat them bad. I'm suffering for Jesus. And I shouldn't have used a country accent. I'm sorry. That was my take on the country accent. In all actuality, this is being a jerk for Jesus. When we think like that, when we act like that, and Peter is saying, don't, don't do that. Because just a, a, a chapter before, Peter's encouraging us to, 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 to be understanding in the way that we live life. He's saying, don't be unkind, don't be unloving. That's not what suffering's about. Don't rejoice in stuff like that. He says, rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ, loving and serving and laying our lives down like Jesus, proclaiming the redemption to be had in Jesus. And if people reject you uh, or insult you when you are representing Jesus like that, rejoice over stuff like that. But don't re- don't rejoice when you're uh, experiencing destructive sin. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So that's, uh, I, I, the word glory sticks out, and it sticks out in this text, verse, verse 16, because Peter has used that word glory in the last three verses. He uses it in verse 13, he uses it in verse 14, skips verse 15, he uses it in verse 16. 
And Peter's telling us we rejoice in the fire because there's glory in the fire. There's glory in the fire. There's something that makes us more godlike when we experience fire. And to understand by and how to glory in the fire, we have to understand the nature of fire. So, of course, this whole passage is talking about fiery trials. A fiery trial is, is a refining, purifying fire. It's not just a destroying fire that completely takes you out. It takes out of you what needs to be removed. You see the, the difference? The, the fire doesn't destroy you. It takes out the stuff that's, that, sh- that needs to be removed so you're more like who God wants you to be. And Peter's referring to a, a passage, a metaphor that I, uh, Malachi gives us in the Old Testament. Here's what Malachi 3, 1 through 4 says. The prophet says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as as in the former days. So there's a lot here. You've heard the you've heard some of these uh, these verses from Malachi before. Maybe you didn't realize they come from Malachi. We we sing some of these words at Christmas time. You've heard some of these words uh, like in the hymns that we sing and, and and all over the place. So there's a lot here. Malachi is referring to the refining that comes to purify us as God's people. That's what he's talking about. He's prophesying. This is what this is what God is going to do in his people in, in future times. It's a purification where we're cleansed of our sins because of Jesus death on the cross and his shed blood that forgives us, cleanses us, removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Right. And that happens when we're saved. Right. So we're not going through this kind of refining fire anymore. If you're a Christian here today, you put your faith in Jesus. You have professed faith in him because of what he's done on the cross in your place for your sin. God is not going to put you through this kind of refining fire anymore, this kind of fire anymore. And so Peter is taking this reference in Malachi and he's applying it to the refining nature of trials that purify us in terms of the brokenness in our lives. And there's not a single one of us in here or those of you on the live stream that doesn't have some brokenness about our lives. Things in your life that, 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 that aren't exactly how God would have you uh, to, to be and to live them out. And so the draw seems to be taken away in the midst of the fire. Have you guys ever seen a silversmith do whatever silversmiths do? All right, me either. Um, but but I know how to Google, right? So so here's what Google tells me that happens when a silversmith is doing his thing. So they put silver, they put any kind of precious metal into a crucible and they heat it up. How do they heat it up? They heat it up in fire. And of course, the goal is for the metal to get so hot that the pure metal the, the, the silver in this case separates from the infirmities, the, 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 the infirmities, the impurities, the impurities, the dross rises to the top. It separates. And of course, the, the interesting point in this whole process is the question of how long does a silversmith keep the, the precious metal, uh, the silver in the fire? Guess how long? It's not a time, not a time standard. It's until the silversmith can look into this precious metal and see his image. Isn't that cool? That's what this I like. I, I, I don't I, have, I don't have time to go back and talk to you about. There's a lot in that Malachi passage, but that's what Malachi is tra- trying to bring up. We've been cleansed through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross to make us a holy temple that God indwells by his spirit. And we're the picture of what God is like. 
You see, he uses this, this picture of, of the sons of Levi. That's the, the, the priest that would come and mediate before God and the people. And the priests represent God. And, and he's making a way for sacrifice to be given to, uh, so that the people can then, in turn, be in fellowship with, with God. Of course, now the Bible in the New Testament tells us we are the temple. Uh, like our, our, our dwelling is a dwelling of God. And so what God is doing is is constantly, consistently changing who we are more into the image of his son. Right. And in perfect picture, albeit. And that's why we go through trials. That's what the trials do. It's constantly honing us uh, to be less like our sinful selves and more like the glorious Jesus. And God is devoted to, to us being this beautiful picture of his son. So the glory of Jesus would be seen through your life. That's the application of what Peter is going back and thinking about this Malachi, Malachi passage. And so the silversmith is going to keep that silver in the fire until his own image is able to be seen in that precious metal. And that's what God is doing in my life and in your life. He keeps using the fire of trials and suffering to purify us so that the dross comes out. You can just scoop it off and you're more like Jesus. And here's what that does. It keeps, it, it, it makes it more, um, it makes us more, um, it helps us to show off the glory of God. I'm stealing that phrase from Eric Mason, but I just love that phrase. It makes us show off the glory of God. The fire of suffering does this to determine in you what's truly of Jesus and what is not. And obviously, that's not that's not a simple process. And probably there's a little bit in it that hurts. I don't know about you, but here's the the truth about me. You know, my heart has multiple allegiances to multiple gods. Uh, Theologically, I, I know who I know who God is. I know what God has done for me in Jesus. I know who I am, my identity in Jesus. Um, but practically, most of us, me included, we have many gods. And how do I know that? Go through a trial and see what happens. Right? You go through a trial and your trials show you. We say we trust in God, but when the trial comes and and it's not if, it's when. The trial is going to come. We see who we really are. And perhaps in this year of 2020, uh, what has happened in many of our lives, Christian and non- is that the trial has shown us who we are. The trial of COVID, the trial of racial tensions, the trial of uh, staying at home and trying to work, the trial of losing your job, the trial of school at home, the trial of not being in the, the community that we want, the trial of not doing all those things that we want to do when we want to do them. All right, those are trials in our lives that causes the, 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 the pressure of our life to, to go up. And what God is using it for is to show us who we really are. And God's purpose in your trial is for the dross to come to the top, for all of your allegiances to be seen as they are, that, that we are really trusting in other gods, depending on other things rather than Jesus. And that's the case for all of us. Someone said a, a trial is any time when a separation can be made between our trusting in God and our allegiance to something or someone else. And here's what I like about this this statement. Without fire, our allegiances can't cohabitate. They're happy. They're they're living together nicely. They keep just living together. But, But God in his grace shows us how we're trusting in and hoping in things that can't save us. And so the goal is trust. That's that's the goal of suffering for you and I. It, it, it's trust. And so just like the the civil rights riders, they 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 walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, a bridge by the way that's named after uh, a, a white supremacist in Alabama, uh, a guy that was the 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 grandmaster of the Alabama Ku Klux Klan. That that bridge is still named after this dude. And so just like these these. Uh, Civil rights people are walking across that bridge, even though they knew there was suffering waiting for them on the other side. The goal is to trust. 
that through the suffering, there's, there's something to be achieved. There's something that that's, this suffering is going to produce. And for us, it's the righteousness of God. And so there's, there's all kinds of things that come up that represent this fire, the fiery trials of our lives. For some of you, it's your job. It's the ways that you interact with your job. It's the people on your job. It's doing the right thing at the right time. Sometimes the, the, te- the pressure, the tension maybe of, am, am I going to do the right thing at the right time? For some of us, it's our relationships in our home, outside of the home. But really, the, 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 the fire is represented by whatever we look to as provision or acceptance or significance or security or approval. Whatever I'm looking at or looking to that I'm expecting to save me. And so Peter says, we can rejoice in suffering because we know Jesus, because we know Jesus, because we share in fellowship with Jesus, because we glorify Jesus. And when we do that, we're being made to be more like Jesus, and especially so in the fire. The dross of our lives is being identified and burned away so that Jesus' spirit might be made more perfect in us. Here's my last point, and it's the last thing that, that, that Peter says here in our text, the last couple of verses. He says, entrust yourself to the refining fire. This fire has a purpose. It's heating up your life so that you would know what's of God and what is not. And he encourages us to entrust ourselves to it. Verse 17, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? This is Peter's way of asking, like, what happens to those who don't believe in the truth of Jesus? Say you're a person that, you know what, I'm fine with my life. I'm happy uh, without God. Like, I, I don't see why I, I need God. I can make my own way. Peter's saying, like, what, what, what's their outcome? If there's judgment for believers, meaning that God is willing to bring us through fiery trials and suffering so that we can be purified and made to be more like Jesus, what about those that don't even want to know or, or be like Jesus? And, and perhaps those are, there's, there, there's some of you in here today that go through life with this perspective of, you know what, I don't think I need God. Like, my life has been successful. I'm happy. I'm okay. My relationships are good. You know, you might say, you know what, yeah, I, there's some things in my life that aren't right, but let, let, doesn't that, isn't everybody like that? When things go wrong, I just try and figure out what I'm supposed to do, and I, and I do it. Uh, when, when things get bad, I just pull myself up by my bootstraps and, you know, I I just make a way. I just I don't think I need God for all that. And and here's what Peter is saying when we have um, language like that. If you're one that uh, don't think you need God, Peter's saying no, capital N-O exclamation point, like 10 or 12 of them. He's saying no. We all need someone to change our heart, to forgive us of sin, and none of us can do that for ourselves. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. And so Peter warns us. He says, don't reject Jesus. Like, like here's how serious God's wrath is. God calls his son, his one and only son, to hang from a cross. And he pinned him to that cross. And his blood was spilled for sins he did not commit. That's how serious the wrath of God is. And so, and so don't hear the words of the good news of Jesus one more time. Hear that that's the message that you need to, to listen to. Hear that that's the message that you need to embrace and yet reject the forgiveness that God is extending to you. That's what Peter is saying to us. He continues that in verse 18. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly sinner? And so Peter says, what's the outcome? He's basically, basically just repeating himself. What's the outcome if for those of us that believe in Jesus can be scarcely saved? What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Which means we all need to be aware of how desperate we are for grace, right? There's no way to come to God without acknowledging and receiving his great grace that he gives us. What's grace? It's, It's favor. It's getting what you don't deserve. What do we do not deserve from God? We don't deserve his kindness. We don't deserve his 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 forgiveness. But he gives it to us in his son. All of us still have allegiances. And yet God comes in the person of Jesus and he strips those from us. 
and he gives us himself. It's right to say we're without hope, without the saving grace of Jesus. And Peter is warning us here, the judgment of God is like for real, for real. It's real. And believe it or not, even with this word, there's, there's hope to be had. And here's why. Here's how, here's how Peter leaves us with hope. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, let us who suffer, let those of us who suffer, according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So here's the question. Who are you entrusting yourself to? That's the question that he leaves us with. In the fire, your life reveals who you are and what you're trusting in. All of us still have allegiances to other gods, but the beauty of our present, present sufferings and fiery trials is that God in it shows us that we're trusting, shows us what we're trusting in and, and how untrustworthy those things are. And then he gives us this beautiful, if beautiful invitation and exhorts us, don't trust in that stuff, trust in me. Right? And then he points to his son. His son who suffered in your stead. Why? So that you would suffer not for your sin, but suffer for him. So my last question for you, Transit Church, is who or what are you entrusting yourself to? And here's what the Bible points us to. It says only Jesus can lead us to the fire to lead us through the fire and through our suffering. And how can he do that? Because he suffered. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Pray that it would not return void, but it would accomplish all that you intend for it to in the lives of every believer, in the life of every unbeliever, anyone that's listening, and even those who have heard. Lord, I pray that you train our hearts as, as, as people who suffer to, to make use of our suffering to prompt us to flee to Jesus rather than from him. God, we pray for your forgiveness for all those ways that we've heard over and over that, that suffering is one of the ways that you uh, prove our faith and our trust in you. And the truth is, none of us wants to go through suffering. But I pray that through Peter's words today, we would uh, be brought to an understanding, brought to a reality even, that God purposes something in our suffering and it's that we might share more greatly in his fellowship. Lord, I would be missed if I didn't pray for those among us who don't know that fellowship. If there's people on the sound of my voice today here who have never professed faith in Jesus, God, I pray that you would um, open their minds to receive and hear, open their hearts to receive uh, the beauty of you dying in our place for our sin. We thank you that you're faithful to us, that you're a God who suffered for us so that we might suffer for you. And uh, I pray that we do that well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.